Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. Today is going to be an interesting uh, discussion. We're going to talk about the Internet of Things. And I refer to it actually um, to, to a couple of people as the silent market or the silent killer app because, you know, there's lots and lots of publicity and talk about broadband and economic development and transforming education and so forth. But you rarely hear about this, this, uh, this category of computing called machine-to-machine computing, where basically you're getting inanimate objects to talk to each other, yet the the potential for having huge impacts on uh, all kinds of organizations and institutions, uh, the general public, uh, just across the board, there are just a, a variety of applications that can take advantage of this. And as we start to move toward having gigabit networks and uh, high-speed uh, wireless networks, we really need to start paying more attention to this issue of machine-to-machine uh, -machine, uh, computing and its role within, uh, within broadband. Uh, today, I've, I brought back a guest who was actually on our show uh, a little while ago talking about broadband in the state of Maine and, and Maine's three-ring Binder project. Uh, today we have uh, Josh Broder, who is the president of Tilson Tech, and he's going to give us a, a, a breakdown of what uh, what M2M means because he's been doing a lot of work in this area. Josh, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Uh, happy to be here. So, for the uninitiated or the folks who are wanting to get more, you know, detail in this, what exactly is the Internet of Things. So the vocabulary that we use around um, broadband and the Internet has largely been developed uh, from the early days of um, analog telephony, uh, people talking to people over telephone lines. And as Internet uh, evolved and, and broadband started to grow in importance relative to voice communications, um, we've adapted physically the networks that we used to use for the telephone network, um, at least in part to help provide Internet service. And along with that development came the adoption of the language of, um, of, the, uh, of the telephone networks into the way we think about broadband. And I would say that early in the, early in the broadband process, um, development process, we, we thought that um, that voice and data uh, would coexist and that voice would continue to be the primary way that we communicate. And over time, we've come to appreciate that you know, data may, in fact, be the primary way that we communicate. But we still think of a computer uh, on the network in the way that we do a telephone. And we think of it like a telephone because, in the end, there's a human being sitting behind it, um, either entering uh, information or receiving information from it, just like we would uh, from a telephone. Um, but in fact, uh, what we actually have happening are two computers talking to each other, and there happens to be people pulling the strings on those computers. So, so the change uh, that we're seeing uh, occur now is a rise in uh, so-called machine-to-machine um, data communication, and this is where we still have two computers talking to each other, but instead of having a human being sitting behind them, um, they may be op operating in an autonomous or sem semi-autonomous way. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll provide maybe an example um, to illustrate what I mean by that. So um, in many communities around the country, um, their power utilities have rolled out uh, something called a smart meter. And a smart meter is a, 
a device that replaces the old analog meter on your house that used to be read uh, once a month uh, to say how much electricity you use. So it's been replaced by a, a new smart meter that's digital that can measure electricity usage uh, more frequently, maybe minute by minute or hourly. And in many cases, that smart meter has been networked back to the power utilities to report that information automatically. So the smart meter says, on this such and such an hour, I used up this amount of electricity, reports that back to a computer at a utility. Well, sitting behind the meter is not a person telling it to do that. And back at the uh, utility company, there isn't a person sitting behind a computer saying uh, necessarily, hey, how much electricity did you use? It's been automated. So we refer to that as machine-to-machine -machine connectivity because uh, it's it's two computers communicating over the Internet, just like uh, uh, the way we think of uh, normal broadband. Um, but in this case, they're doing an automated function that doesn't necessarily require the intervention of a, of a human being. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, you know, so I'm here broadcasting the show from uh, the, the brain center of uh, Chattanooga's gigabit network, EPB, and EPB is a public utility that owns the network, and their initial application was to have um, the the uh, smart grid, the thing that runs the, the power and electricity to all the various uh, individuals and businesses, to basically upgrade that with sophisticated electronics overlaying a fiber network, or I guess I should say powered by a uh, high-speed fiber network that um, that allows all of these various devices and smart meters and uh, the 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 stuff that makes electricity you know happen that goes from the power source to the to the consumer makes all that stuff work and not only work but work more efficiently and without a lot of uh, human intervention. And I might add that uh, yesterday, at the beginning of this big demo day show, which was a big is a big deal here in, in Chattanooga, there was a power outage through much of the city, and but it only lasted for three minutes. Whereas in a typical you know network without all of this electronics, without the the gigabit network, that power outage could have lasted for hours, if not a day or two, and and I'm correct, I'm uh, right in saying that this is the you know, just one example of the power of machine-to-machine -machine communication. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great example, and it's really interesting that when you look at the example in Chattanooga, I mean, certainly uh, this gigabit network is incredibly useful to the people that live in Chattanooga, to to people working from home and 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 businesses and organizations using the network. But if you if you look at the underlying structure that a, a public utility did this and and they use it to run their grid, it starts to give you a sense of just how important this machine to machine communication is amongst the other kinds of internet traffic we have uh, between mm -hmm. people and, and increasingly uh, more and more bandwidth is being used um, to connect machines now what I would say is that uh, you know in these early days of, of machine to machine communication the amount of bandwidth being consumed is not tremendous a large bandwidth driver on the internet outside of you know major research applications is video and uh, generally, a lot of the machine-to-machine -machine applications we use, uh, certainly some of them use video, but many of them are not uh, video-intensive because video is a service for people. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a service for people who want to watch something. So um, I think what we're seeing is that a lot of this machine-to-machine -machine communication doesn't necessarily take up tremendous capacity, but it does take uh, distributed coverage. And what I mean by that is that the, the places where machines need to communicate tend to be in remote locations. Uh, in the case of these power meters, they're out in the neighborhoods and people's houses. Uh, in the case of airports, they're at weather, weather sensors out, out across the runway. Um, and uh, in the case of uh, smart, uh, you know, intelligent transportation on highway systems, they're, you know, in median strips and in areas that are uh, far from other uh, human broadband users and, and maybe very difficult to reach. Um, so I, I think as we think about the challenge and importance of machine-to-machine -machine communications, it starts, you start to realize that it places a premium on uh, coverage uh, in some ways more than it does on capacity. And the, the focus of deployment of networks for humans has been to build uh, a lot of capacity to relatively narrow geographically bounded areas where people congregate, either to live or to work. But in the case of machine-to-machine -machine communication, some of these machines that are out uh, in remote locations um, require an inordinate amount of network to connect them. So 
we're starting to see some different patterns in the way networks are deployed to service machine-to-machine customers. And uh, I think that will have perhaps a positive effect on um, the expansion of broadband into places where it might have been uneconomic because you weren't hitting clusters uh, where people gather. Mm -hmm. So in essence, it is the um, ability to wire or wirelessly enable sparsely populated areas is in fact a contribution to the, uh, the business case of broadband in this particular case. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you if you think about where are machine-to-machine applications going to be, they, they may be in places, uh, not only in places where people gather, but places where people don't gather, particularly mm-hmm. around in industrial automation. So if you can imagine, um, if you can imagine uh, a water pumping station, um, a water pumping station may be uh, close to a lake or a water source outside of a metro area, and that water pumping station is responsible for moving clean water into an urban center for drinking water, let's say. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe at two or three locations from up in the mountains where it is down into the town, there's uh, little water pumping substations. And each of those locations um, has machines uh, that are automated inside you know, perhaps a, a little hut, and the water utility controls those facilities uh, remotely um, using uh, machine-to-machine connections. And... Um, you may think, well, going from that mountain pond down into town, there really isn't a reason to have good Internet connection um, along that route. But to serve these uh, machine-to-machine connections in a remote location requires some network engineering and extension of the network. And increasingly, uh, those machine-to-machine connections are being made using cellular connections. And Mm -hmm. it's a bit hard to tell because it's a chicken or egg game. Is that happening more because cellular Cellular coverage is improving um, into some of those hard-to-reach places. Therefore, it's available, and um, you know, utilities and, and companies and other organizations with remote applications are utilizing it. Or are those um, networks growing into those remote locations to capture the revenue that's available from those kind of machine-to-machine customers? And I think the answer is complicated, and in many cases, it's it's some of both. Mm-hmm. Now, how does one go about developing this uh, this business case? Because as I look at it, and we can talk about the historic evolution of uh, machine-to-machine uh, technology, but, you know, there are so many things that it can impact. I feel like sometimes, you, you know, the average, say, broadband planning team would become overwhelmed by the potential because there's just so much of it. So, so how well, do you it- kind of cut through to, you know, figure out where your priorities are going to go and to get this thing started. Yeah, so I, I think it really is application-specific, and it, and it depends who the broadband planners are. In, in, the, in the case of where you're sitting now in Chattanooga, you know, the electric utility um, had not only a vision for running their grid responsibly, but a vision for economic development. And, 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 uh, and, it, and because it was a publicly-owned utility, you know, enfranchising the citizens of that town to participate uh, on the network. Uh, in, in other applications, in other locations, uh, the, the entity deploying the broadband may have a different driver. And in the case of non-subsidized commercial uh, broadband development, which except for a few small exceptions, I mean, cellular cellular deployment is certainly where the biggest dollars are going right now in broadband deployments. Um, generally, the, the costs are being borne... Um, by private investors, um, again, maybe with the exception of the federal government's cellular mobility fund, which is about 500 million bucks a year to go to ultra-remote rural areas, most of the cellular development, billions of dollars a year, is private. And so, in in the in the case of what motivates the those companies as network deployers is uh, revenue, and to them, they get revenue in two ways. They get revenue by uh, providing coverage and capacity in places where they know customers are going to be. And they also uh, get revenue by having customers choose their network because those customers perceive that the network provides coverage in all of the areas they could potentially be. So there is some revenue value to covering an area that may not be that economically productive, but that your customers may go to from time to time, and uh, they just don't want to have a gap in their coverage. Where where I think the machine-to-machine connections uh, start to drive private investment is when 
machine-to-machine uh, -machine connections are, are concentrated in a specific area. And when they're concentrated in a specific area, uh, they tend to not move. Machine-to-machine uh, -machine connections tend to be static applications, although I think as we see a proliferation and you know, drone technology and automated vehicles and so on, you may see machine-to-machine -machine connections become a more mobile application, but they tend to be static today. And in those static locations, they provide a better business case for a cellular provider um, to provide coverage and capacity in a given area. So for private um, broadband providers, I think that certainly, or I should say privately funded, unsubsidized broadband providers, that should certainly provide a business case. I think for subsidized providers, which today uh, most um, terrestrial deployment outside of cable, so with traditional telephone companies, is uh, heavily subsidized. In those areas, I think, um, I think they're not terribly sensitive to the need for machine-to-machine -machine connectivity. They're sensitive to the uh, driving forces behind subsidy. And generally, I think for public sector broadband planners, those deciding where the subsidy needs to go, they're tending to drive that subsidy towards uh, where people are um, because those public agencies are, are typically perhaps not political themselves but are certainly uh, under the control of a political apparatus and political apparatus is uh, responsive to people so they tend to be people oriented and, and perhaps not as sensitive to more industrial applications uh, or commercial applications that are machine to machine. So I think mm -hmm. one of the things we may want to you know add to the conversation with our uh, public sector subsidized broadband planners is you know, how do we meet the needs of some of these machine-to-machine -machine applications because, in fact, they do a lot of public good uh, in many cases, particularly in the utility and transportation spaces. Mm -hmm. now, now, in a situation where the community, uh, say, is, is owning the network, uh, whether it's a, a community such as Chattanooga or it can be you know, small-town America, really anywhere, does it help to kind to, to have some folks with some machine-to-machine, uh, -machine, I don't know, vision or experience to kind of look at the town to identify where the opportunities are? Because I would, you know, based on what you described as, you know, how uh, private providers might be more benefited by static application of this technology and public subsidized providers may be benefited by mobile uh, implementations of these uh, of these technologies. If the community is owning the infrastructure, it seems like they would want to look at both. They would want to look at you know how can their technology, how can the network they're planning address safe factories or hospitals that are trying to do resource management, and that's fairly static. But you also have. Um, all of the, you know, many of the apparatus of government, you know, uh, uh, snowplow removal equipment and tractors and emergency vehicles and so forth, and you need to know where all of they, where all of those um, tools, if you will, are, that you can, in essence, have the, you know, towns like, uh, I don't know, Tumwa and, and uh, rural Vermont and so forth and so on, really be looking at both categories of, of applications of uh, M to M technology. Yeah, Craig, that's actually a really good question. When you know, in terms of thinking about how communities trying to deploy broadband can engage uh, with finding ways to drive a broadband adoption in their communities, and also to find ways to help uh, spread the cost of facilities. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, one of the challenges with broadband, particularly in in rural areas or in areas where broadband facilities may be legacy and need recapitalization to be as fast as they could be, um, how do you pay for it? And, and one of the ways you pay for it is by engaging as broad a group of users as you can to spread the cost around. And these machine-to-machine -machine users may be significant users in some communities. And uh, one of the tools that those communities have is to look at particularly the public sector applications for machine-to-machine -machine connections. And when I say public sector, I'm going to include privately owned public utilities uh, mm -hmm. because you know they're essentially uh performing an essential function of government under a you know a government granted monopoly uh within a territory and um so those those public service um and particularly public utility applications within a community provide an opportunity for those communities um to have more anchor customers on a broadband network and therefore find mechanisms to share that cost so in my own work as a broadband planner for hire in communities and in other consultants that I peer group with, uh, 
one of the conversations we often have is, you know, who are the who are the players in your community who might have machine to machine connections and, and how can we engage with these public utilities to see where there may be um some shared use of broadband infrastructure since they have a growing application uh to automate their facilities wherever they may be. And and the two really I would say the three types of facilities that you might believe are ubiquitous in every community are power water and transportation and mm-hmm. uh, by water I mean both you know wastewater and freshwater and all of those facilities have machinery uh, machinery that needs to be uh, operated and controlled and data that needs to be gathered and reported back and these are sort of the most common and most basic machine to machine applications so you know as a piece of free advice I would encourage you know communities to engage uh, with their uh, utility infrastructure providers and public works departments to figure out, you know, where they need to gather data and where they need to provide remote control of devices. And uh, and if they're not sure where to start with that, to reach out to somebody who uh, does work in in the space of automating those utility or transportation facilities so they understand how to include those kind of facilities in their planning process to ensure that there's some support um, from some of these entities in the in the sharing of the cost and also to provide the most public good um, in the deployment of the networks. Mm-hmm. It, that's um, you know that's interesting, uh, and maybe now would be a good talk about the uh, the evolution of machine to machine because back in oh way back way back when in 2007 or eight, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago, there there was a lot of um, discussion about machine to machine. Technology, though it wasn't really de- maybe described as such, but I think a lot of people remember when RF, uh, RFID chips were like all the rage, especially after Walmart or one of the other big box stores, you know, said that all of their um, vendors and suppliers have to put all these RFID chips inside of um, merchandise and pallets that hold the merchandise in order to make um, inventory management easier. And there was, I don't know, uh, this whole rush of, of activity and urgency to come up with RFID, um, you know, technology, smaller, faster, cheaper, and all that good stuff. Where has the, the, the machine-to-machine technology evolved in the, in, the, in the time since, you know, this was a big, this was a big deal? Yeah, so the the evolution of machine to machine technology has roughly uh, handrailed the evolution of the uh, broadband technologies um, as they've advanced for other applications like people talking to people. Um, mm-hmm. And when you think about the early days of RFIDs, RFIDs were certainly a machine to machine application. Um, but the way that the RFID worked is it only really provided one way communication. Um, so mm-hmm. the RFID w- was in fact triggered externally to provide a signal. But the signal it provided was information just going in one direction. The RFID had, you know, a limited uh, set of um, of data written to it, and it could say, "I'm RFID number one two three four five, and uh, I'm a a class B shipping container, and my contents are these four things." Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it could provide uh, a, a call and response mechanism, and the call was, "Hey you," and the response was, "Whatever you told it." that the response could be. So it was a relatively limited interaction. And and today, machine-to-machine connections have the full richness of uh, the broadband connections we would have between two computers today. You can exchange, uh, you know, virtually any kind of information, and you can exchange that information bidirectionally and in a complicated way. So in in the application that I started with, this idea of smart metering, where a a meter can report on its... uh, on its um, usage, on a, let's say an hourly basis, it's kind of a simple application, but because it's a broadband connection um, and the machine-to-machine technology has improved to exchange lots of data uh, like we do normally between any other computers, it, it can also um, run a diagnostic test on itself at the request of another machine and provide a, a detailed uh, response based on what it finds. Uh, the meter can be turned on and off the meter can be asked to contact another ad- adjacent meter, and uh, you know theoretically that broadband connection could be harnessed to do other things, like provide a broadband connection to the house, or uh, to provide pass-through data from maybe another adjacent meter, like a water meter or a, or a gas meter. Um, so, 
the connection uh, that we have between these machines can really provide, you know, a broad range of um, applications and services in the same way that uh, two computers connected together today uh, can do that. So uh, essentially, these are plain old regular internet connections, and and they can do anything that we can do over the internet today. But uh, the primary difference in calling out this machine-to-machine relationship is that we've asked machines to get work done for us without human actors directly mm-hmm. involved on a on a real-time basis. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the, um, uh, I, I guess, interesting application of the technology was, you know, we, we had the RFID units, and that was about the one-way communication. Hey, I'm over here, and this is what I have in, inside of me or whatever. Then we kind of went through a phase of um, having the electronics that would, um, in essence, evaluate the operation of whatever it's t- attached to or built into to monitor its its um, its health and well-being. So basically, if I'm a piece of uh, operating equipment in a manufacturing plant, uh, the sensor looks at all of these various uh, factors that govern the, the good or the bad about my operation. And if I'm about to blow a gasket, it'll send a signal so that, in essence, you are notified before there is a disaster and before the machinery uh, fails to, to, to function. And so I'm guessing that we are really making more sophisticated versions of that kind of, um, you know, not only, hi, here I am, and, you know, yes, I'm going I'm to open up a dialogue between myself and another piece of machinery, but I'm also going to do a lot of self-testing and self-evaluation and all of that so that I can, you know, predict ahead of time if there's going to be problems and so forth. Yeah, no, I think I think that's an accurate representation, Craig. I mean, the the sophistication of what machine-to-machine devices are doing is only limited by the creativity of the engineers that set up a a specific connection for a specific application. And I think a lot of what you know, the from where we are today to where we were with RFIDs, this intermediate technology where um, we were essentially doing mostly industrial automation, so uh, helping machines run, you know, complicated uh, stored procedures within a limited set of parameters. I mean, that that clearly is um, that clearly has been probably the greatest economic use of machine-to-machine technology. I, I think what we're starting to enter a new era of, and this is this is sort of the cutting edge of machine-to-machine connections, is um, having having uh some interconnection and 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 communication between autonomous vehicles that are performing something more complicated than a stored procedure and and the and the the thing that comes to mind is um the video feeds that come off of drones for example so in you know in a former life before I was a uh, uh, technology and broadband consultant. Uh, I was an Army communications officer building networks, and one of the things we did with those networks is we uh, we got video feeds from drones aloft, and those drones did all kinds of things, from you know attacking targets to gathering reconnaissance to checking weather conditions. And in some cases, those drones might be operating autonomously, so uh, they they behave on their own based on certain parameters and provide uh feedback to users in other cases they were you know simply remote controlled uh and in any case those all had a machine to machine connection uh that would provide a video feed and the video feed didn't go back to a person uh the video feed went back to a a, a server farm where the videos were cached and then served to people as they need them and and to me that's a pretty good example of a machine to machine connection because the the video isn't being triggered or interpreted or processed by people, not when it's being taken and and not when it's being received and stored. Later it's useful for people, but in this case the the dynamics of the interaction between, you know, the drone and and the machines receiving the data, maybe even some of the processing of that data is automated, but it's it's certainly not driven by a a person moment to moment. So I I think the things we're doing on a machine-to-machine basis are getting more complicated, and to be honest, the broadband technologies... Uh, we're using to do this are not getting much more complicated. We're just using the broadband technologies we have. It's the applications, it's the automated equipment that these machine-to-machine connections are either actuating or controlling or facilitating that are getting more complicated. So 
from a broadband story, I think what we're seeing is a full expression of the integration of complicated networks that we already have or are growing with creative people thinking of new applications on how to leverage those networks. As mm-hmm. usual, the, the the applications are hard and the technology is easy. <laughs> that uh, is, is very definitely uh, the case. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, the reason I'm, I'm here actually in Chattanooga is because they, they had the um, demo day yesterday. They basically demonstrated products and services from uh, seven uh, startup teams that have been here in Chattanooga since the beginning of the summer as part of this accelerated application development uh, program. And one of the uh, companies involved, HutGrip, um, has a an application that facilitates manufacturing because in large part it is doing a sophisticated combination of, you know, here's where all of your resources are and then here is the status and the um, you know, the condition of all of your various um, uh, resources. And on top of that, we sort of monitor how the process goes, you know, how the device goes from here to, you know, one station to the next station and so forth. And it's doing a combination of, you know, diagnostics and it's feeding, you know, in, information into a database and, you know, which I'm sure feeds the inventory management and so forth. Just insanely complex. But they've developed it for the smaller uh, manufacturing, the light manufacturing, as it were. So, you know, it's interesting to see the the application and, and where the gig network provides value is not so much the bandwidth requirement of the application, but the ability to develop and test the application in this gigabit environment where they have a number of both large and small manufacturing companies here in Chattanooga. They have lots of people. They have businesses. They have suppliers. I mean, you have this whole ecosystem, and all of it's running on this gigabit network. And so the application development time and the process, uh, the modeling even, and even mentoring and um, communicating with other resources outside of Chattanooga, all this stuff is facilitated by... Uh, the gigabit network, and I say that to, you know to, to sort of bring home the point that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's not so much about you know each application necessarily requiring huge amounts of bandwidth, but the bandwidth is a factor in how you develop and how you deploy and how you manage all of the, the the entities and and objects that are connected with that machine to machine technology. Yeah, well, that's really exciting to hear that all coming together in Chattanooga. I mean, what I think you're seeing and and what I think we're seeing nationwide in in machine-to-machine development is that the improvements in the network drive the opportunity to have applications. So having a network itself isn't sufficient to say that we've created value, but the presence of that network unlocks the ability for people to deploy creative applications that you know, we humble network guys uh, really aren't smart enough to think of. Um, but we know but we know from places like Chattanooga, when we improve the network, people do really uh, phenomenal things with that network. And I think the proliferation of machine-to-machine um, connections and applications has been driven by the general improvement of networks overall in places like Chattanooga, where they might have a, a gig fiber-to-the-prem network, uh, certainly, but... Uh, more generally across the country, I think in areas where ubiquitous cellular coverage, and particularly fast cellular coverage like LTE, is making it possible to do really interesting things uh, without even having to coordinate with the network provider. You can just show up in a geography, and because there's a connection and you've paid uh, for a service, you can drop in your machine-to-machine connection and it just works. Um, Mm -hmm. And the sort of plug-and-play and adaptability of that situation that doesn't require anything beyond you know, walking into a Verizon store and buying an air card or going online and ordering a, you know, a Sierra wireless or a Digi um, machine-to-machine modem allows you to just go invent your applications and not have to do a lot of thinking about the network. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do think is that as machine-to-machine applications drift away from the more rarefied uh, industrial applications and, and even commercial enterprise applications and become more common in consumer environment, what we're going to find is that the networks we have uh, will start to see uh, some challenges around capacity. And in the beginning of the talk, I said 
boy, the most important thing in the machine-to-machine world, because these aren't high-bandwidth applications generally, is coverage versus capacity. Well, I think if you look over the horizon, if you think what are some of the next applications that are going to be coming, I think we're going to see more machines in our life enabled with connections. And as those machines in our life are enabled with connections, uh, I think you'll see the total device count uh, that's operating on a network within a given premise increase significantly. Um, So we used to think of a connection into your house just serving your home computer and everybody in the family waited in line to use the computer for their turn. Mm -hmm. You know, today, flash Mm -hmm. forward four or five years from that first Commodore 64 when everybody lined up to get on Prodigy, uh, now everybody's got an iPad and an iPhone and a laptop. In a given house, you might have 15 devices, uh, you know, if you've got a couple of kids, Xbox is Mm -hmm. enabled and so on. And uh, what I think might live in our future would be uh, situations where the refrigerator or the furnace um, or the television or, you know, any number of devices. In fact, many televisions are now, of course, Internet-enabled, but many of these appliances and, and consumer devices, particularly cars, uh, particularly around transportation, these may require connections as well. And even if even if their applications don't become high bandwidth, and of course they might, uh, just the sheer device count over the network is going to increase significantly. So uh, just as we see networks, you know, traditional DSL class networks sort of start to crumble under the 15 devices in a household demand, uh, what I think we're going to we're going to see that level of growth again as more machines, as we have more machines in our life, things like helper robots and cars that drive themselves. Um, and uh, as um, not only do we have more devices, but more of those devices become um, uh, Internet or connection enabled. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to make sure folks grasp the fact that uh, machine to machine uh will in, at some point or a lot of points will include uh human intervention um i uh when i uh, did some work for uh, one of these companies that was developing applications to help you know machines in essence communicate with each other there were um you know questions about well how do we get those to interact with the person you know the factory worker or the security person that's working working yeah walking around the premises um, needing to be fed information, and then based on what information they're fed, maybe there is time for the human interaction. Or when when everybody was you know all in a tizzy over Muni Wi-Fi, you know what was the advantage of having um, you know citywide Wi-Fi networks, you know, and they would talk about uh, fire uh, responders heading out to the scene of a fire, and because there's all this machine-to-machine technology within, uh, you know, a factory or a warehouse or, uh, you know, whatever building where the fire was was happening, that that machinery, that technology would take and transmit information about inventory, uh, about the presence of chemicals, uh, the presence these days, you know, I think the sophistication is, you know, we even be able to tell what's in the air around uh, a plant that's on on fire. And so, you know, the ability to interact with humans, um, and as you said, you know, you talk about the, the proliferation of devices, but I think from a planning perspective, you know, make sure that you don't, limit your focus just to um you know the, the the machines talking to machines or just the appliances within the home talking to individuals i think it's going to be you know pretty much across the board i think that at, at some point it's likely that any human being both for work play and you know home life is going to interact with something that will be touching or or tied to some way uh, machine-to-machine technology. Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, essentially we have an application development environment, and by application I don't just mean software application, but, you know, things we do with tools, uh, tools being, you know, mechanical, electrical, uh, computing, or otherwise. That that application development environment, the, the creative juices that go into invention, now presuppose connectivity. And uh, that's a recent, uh, I think it's really important to remember that that's a recent phenomenon. Um, If you go back even 10 years, uh, the application development environment, the tool development environment, the the invention, the inventors, didn't presuppose connectivity. In fact, 
connectivity was the exception and not the rule. There were special places you went to get a connectivity, like the library mm-hmm. uh, or, or university. Um, and uh, and so only in the last decade, and, and maybe only in the latter half of this decade, have we presumed that devices would have access to ubiquitous connectivity. And I think we've only just begun to see the emergence of the applications that uh, these inventors will bring us uh, knowing that there'll be connectivity. And so as a network planner and a network developer in my professional life, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night is, are we building this in a robust enough way? Are we providing enough coverage in enough places? Are we anticipating doubling or tripling or quadrupling the number of devices on a given segment in anticipation of, um, you know, the next decade when we have, um, you know, an innovation environment that presupposes ubiquitous connectivity? Mm-hmm. One of the things, you know, since a fair amount of the audience listening to the show are, you know, are in planning modes, they're tasked with building the business case and so forth for these applications, you know, and we've talked about a lot of the kinds of situations in which you would use uh, machine-to-machine technology, maybe it's good to talk about um, some of the uh, the benefits and some of the quantifiables, because I know, you know, you have people that in general sense, we'll we'll categorize broadband benefits and, you know, these things we can quantify in dollars and cents and these things over here that we can't exactly quantify, but but we know they're good for, you know, our business community. We know they're good for our students, that kind of thing. Um, One of the, the more interesting areas I found for planning the benefit of machine to machine was the resource management and the impact that um improving the resource management had in dollars and cents terms for example um if you have uh a county hospital or you know a general hospital environment uh the amount of equipment that walks away is is rather rather huge and when you start quantifying that and you start you know asking the question well if we had a system that would allow a you know a heart pump to uh both uh transmit its condition you know like how you know it needs a new battery whatever the case is but 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 where it's located um you know having people be able to find that quickly has a dollar impact being able to find uh earth moving equipment in a hurry uh because it typically rotates between three works work locations um has a has a dollar and cents payback from your observation what are some of the ways in which you can you know start quantifying in real numbers some of the benefits of uh machine to machine Stuff. Yeah, that's a good question because um, all this stuff comes at a cost. Um, I, I think the there's two ways of thinking about cost savings in machine-to-machine applications. Uh, the first is labor avoidance, um, and by labor avoidance, I mean going again going back to our meter reading analogy. Um, it used to be that we sent a human being out to go read a meter uh, once a month, and they had to physically touch every meter within a territory, and in communities that have smart meters, that happens now automatically. So we save some money uh, through um, avoidance of some human labor costs. Uh, The second way of thinking about it is improvement in the application. So I think that if reducing human labor was our only upside to doing machine-to-machine technology, if we just said, well, we're going to automate the turning on of that device in the pump station, we're not going to have to send someone out there. I mean, that's a useful... Uh, savings, perhaps both in time and money, but it's not transformative. I think what's transformative is in the improvement of the application, uh, and particularly the improvement of the application by creating large data sets. Um, So when we think about this uh, meter analogy, it used to be that we went out and and looked at the meter every uh, 30 days. And the only data we had in that one data point of every 30 days was uh, how much power did the consumer use in aggregate during that 30-day period, a single value? Well, now we have other data types, like what is the voltage that that meter is receiving at a given moment? Um, And if we can see what the voltage that that meter and the meter next to it and the meter all along a certain segment, we might see that on a certain segment there's a large transformer that's going to fail 
because we know that that when that transformer fails, uh, we see a two volt drop a week before it fails. I, I don't know enough about transformers to tell you what that number would mm-hmm. be, but we, we'd expect to see some kind of predictive behavior. And because we're now collecting voltage data at the end of the line on all those consumers, now we can start to predict that that device is going to fail. And when that device fails, uh, it destroys itself, let's say. Mm-hmm. And when it destroys itself, as opposed to having the part that fails and it replaced, the difference in the maintenance cost goes from $50,000 to a $1 million. Well, there's some huge direct savings because we had a machine-to-machine application that created data. And typically, it's not the machine-to-machine application itself which saves the money. It's the machine-to-machine application's creation of these large data sets and then the subsequent analysis and action that can be uh, done as a result of that analysis that creates the savings or the improvement in the application. So, yes, there's labor avoidance and automation, but that's that was an early and modest win in machine-to-machine applications. I think the real goldmine here is the data that these devices create and our ability to parse that data and ask tough questions and get nuanced answers and then take action, which is really going to save a lot of money and a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. And, and then that money then is the return on investment you'd expect to pay the rate on the cost to use those networks and the extra equipment and labor involved to connect those devices. Mm-hmm. Let's talk Let's talk a little bit about M2M in uh, healthcare delivery. I mean, I talked about it from a management standpoint of, you say, your hospital and all of its various resources, and there's dollar impacts there. But, uh, you know, again, looking at the, um, the uh, demo day that happened yesterday here, um, there were three applications dealing with healthcare. Um, one of those in particular, which I think is of importance, is your you know, you're monitoring, I don't know, the data capture of, say, uh, devices that capture your blood pressure and your, um, you know, your sugar count and a, num- a number of other things relative to, you know, your health, whether it's a proactive preventative measure or because people are chronically ill. And so you have devices um, in the home uh, collecting uh, health-related information that then gets transmitted to a you know a relative and and so forth. That is one example of you know some of the changes that are coming down the pike in um, in healthcare. But are there others where um, where M to M M is going to have uh, an impact? Do you think? Are you saying other sectors or other areas within healthcare? Other areas within telemedicine, uh, healthcare service delivery. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the interesting thing about uh, about M M&M technology is that the is that the value proposition sort of follows the same model regardless of the industry. So, uh, mm. you know, uh, taking this telemedicine example you just threw out. So, if you have uh, a variety of patients with, let's say, chronic illness like uh, diabetes, and and we know that. Uh, patients with diabetes do really well when they get regular proactive care. They don't do so well when you don't see them that often, um, mm-hmm. and, and the disease can get out of control and cause more serious health problems. So in that situation, you say, we'd like to really reach out and touch those patients a lot. So is there a way that we can automate the touching of those patients? And so sort of value proposition one is just like I talked about with the meter. Let's eliminate the the meter reader or send the meter reader out more often. We do that by saying okay, we're going to put a uh, blood pressure cuff in, you know, patient's house, and we're going to put a video uh, camera in the patient's house, and maybe we'll put a, you know, I don't know a lot about diabetes, but, you know, whatever the, you know, blood sugar tester that can go into a cradle and transmit data or wirelessly mm-hmm. transmit data. We're going to collect these things as if a nurse was coming to the house and checking up on this patient. And those things are going to transmit to the hospital. Maybe it's not an interactive session with a nurse, but twice a day if this patient's going to be on this plan, they're going to check in with their station, and we're going to get that data. And so sort of value creation moment number one is that this person uh, uh, didn't require two house visits that day, uh, but we still got the benefit of gathering the data. Uh, value creation moment two, I think, is the bigger is the bigger value creation moment, which, again, isn't directly related to M2M, but M2M created the opportunity to do this higher level of analytics, which is, okay, now we've just collected all of this data, 
and now we can start to do more complicated things. Like we know that when diabetes patients also have higher blood pressure, uh, we have a higher incidence of this downstream complication. And uh, we're, we know that these are the kind of parameters around high blood pressure we'd expect to see that, and we can start to correlate different data sets about that patient, and perhaps uh, we have a system that receives a feed from their electronic medical record or the statewide health record exchange uh, where that uh, patient resides, and we can start to flag, hey, this person's going to the hospital in the next week, and now it's time to send a nurse out to prevent something terrible from happening. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, again, I think that bigger value creation moment is the the the, the having a large data set and perhaps correlating that with other data to start to run sort of big data analytics about, you know, expected behaviors and then start to take action. And I think those are really the applications that we can expect to see a lot of value. Although, you know, I think most in healthcare would say, look, we'd be thrilled to just touch that patient once a week instead of once a month. And if we can avoid the cost of sending a nurse, that's a huge cost win for us. But mm -hmm. I, I think the much bigger deal is having data about that patient and running analytics against it. Mm -hmm. So now, who are the builders typically of MTEM uh, applications. You know, if I, as a as the broadband planner, you know, identify the need, I go out to my businesses and hospitals and everywhere else and come back and say, well, you know, this stuff could help us here and it could help us there and so forth. What's the typical, you know, process from there? Do you have to go to an industry application developer and that developer takes care of all? Or what happens if you have five different industries that you're trying to apply this to in your community, you know, what, what, what's a sort of a logical process? Well, I, I think it, I think it's a bit, um, it's a bit dependent on the applications that you think you have available to you. But I mean, I, I really see two, two places to go. I, I, I think the first is for broadband planners. It's important to go and talk to either the consultants or the vendors that are providing M to M services uh, to the, public entities that are receiving those services. So uh, there, in the case of every community, if there's a water utility or a power utility or a police department or a hospital, there is an ecosystem of service providers that are delivering the networks and the applications to those individuals. And I, I feel like for broadband planners, part of the planning process is to engage with those people who really are close to both the networks and the applications. I think as we start to think about what we can do downstream with the data, um, generally each of these industry areas comes with an open data exchange standard. And uh, as you start to progress past uh, sort of broadband planning, um, I think we start to look at what can we do with the data once we have it. And, and that really has to do with the people that add value to those areas. So if you're in the power space, you look at the green button standard. Um, and if you're in the medical or the healthcare space, uh, there's a there's a, a health record exchange data standard and, and so on. So for broadband planners, again, I think it's about going and identifying the organizations that have data needs in their communities, and, and that typically comes from the vendor and consultant ecosystem that's helping those uh, organizations already before you started doing more broadband planning. And then once you get into those individual applications, I think uh, typically the the organizations that are doing things with that data, like hospitals or, or police departments or power companies, know who those um, who those sort of open standards developers are in their individual industries. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, that that makes sense. I can see how you would uh, you would follow the the path that way. We've got about uh, five minutes or so uh, to 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 go. Um, if you were to, again, looking at sort of this broad spectrum of where you could possibly go uh, with MTAM, you know, I'm always one about, you know, pick one or two to start with that and then kind of expand from there rather than try to, you know, bite off the whole, you know, deal in one, one fell swoop. Where would you, um, you know, where would you focus? Would it be in the medical health care? I mean, one of our audience in the chat room brings up that as a, a viable area because of the, you know, ability to, 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 to create some cost and, and service delivery benefits. Or you could look at, you know, how we address our elderly population, you know, through elder care as, as an area where this might pay off quickly. Um, from your vantage point, 
uh, and I realize, you know, every community is going to be different, right, and they'll have different needs. But if you were to say, well, maybe just at least start thinking about, you know, a first step, second step, where would you point them? So I, I think the first step is about engaging with uh, facilities that are already available. Mm-hmm. And, and the facilities that are available to leverage M2M are uh, utility facilities, and I, I would particularly say the ubiquitous utility facilities of power and water. And so if I'm a community, I'm trying to help figure out my business case or plan for how to get the most use out of a network, I want to talk to my utilities and make sure that they're included in the conversation. I think a second step, and I, and I say a second step because I don't think the healthcare industry has quite arrived, they've just started making noises about this, is uh, in healthcare and particularly around telemedicine and, and the automation of the of the nurse's visit or the doctor's visit. And um, I would say that in most hospital systems, they're not ready to engage with the communities on this issue. But I think it's coming soon, and I, I think there's certainly pilot communities out there that are looking at this issue and starting to make strides towards doing something about it. But I'm, I'm guessing that for broadband planners today, utilities are ready to engage with them and are actively using these technologies, and I think healthcare is coming. But it may be a bit premature for a rural community to, to hang their broadband deployment strategy on it today, but there may be a significant opportunity for the enhanced use of the network, uh, you know, just over the horizon on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Now, one thing, and we got about three minutes. One thing that you've mentioned a lot, you've talked about cellular wireless as a main, I know, vehicle for developing and de- and delivering M to M applications. Is that, in your mind, the primary? Uh, I don't know, type of wireless that we should be looking at is cellular uh, as opposed to, say, point-to-point wireless networks or mesh networks? Yeah, so I I think it depends on the application and the community. Uh, So I really do have a technology agnostic viewpoint. I would say most generally we're talking to a national audience today in most communities. Mm -hmm. The the most sophisticated, most heavily invested uh, network available is the cellular network. And I think yeah. for most MNM applications, that's what we're looking at. But I would say that, you know, every community is different, um, and uh, each of these technologies has their appropriate place in the right application. But most broadly, if I were to give you a quick off-the-cuff answer, I'd say, uh, you know, cellular is the primary mover in network development right now. Okay. Excellent. Well, this has been a very good uh, breakdown, and I am sure that I will come back to the uh, M2M space again, and uh, and and also you got because you're doing, you know, you're doing a number of projects, right? So I mean, we we first talked and you were were just finishing up the the, the three ring binder process in uh, Maine, but you do a lot of other stuff, right? Tilson Tech. Yeah, yeah, we're building uh, fiber networks all over the country, and and uh, we're building a lot of cellular networks, and particularly the complicated cellular networks that get down to the nooks and crannies and tunnels and in buildings and and some of the hard-to-reach places. So um, we build uh, both for uh, utilities who uh, are not waiting for uh, local networks to catch up with their needs, and they're building ad hoc networks to connect their devices. Mm-hmm. And we're also working for the carriers that uh, provide uh, those connections. And then we have a consulting group that helps communities uh, figure out um, how to bring broadband into their communities and how to do some technical planning around uh, the best way to do that, you know, budgeting and business case and so on. So we're staying really busy. Uh, the good news is, is that on the back of an improving economy, uh, the carriers, the utilities, and private communities, um, you know, on their on their own initiative are building networks. So we're staying really busy uh, uh, planning and building networks all over. Well, you know, busy is good. <laughs> we cannot argue against that one. Well, um, I obviously wish you guys, uh, you know, much continued success. And again, you know, thank you for uh, you know spending time to talk to us about uh, the machine-to-machine stuff. It's been very helpful. So yeah, that's good. thanks, Craig. Always a pleasure to be on your show. All righty, and to our audience out there, thank you once again for listening in. Uh, tomorrow, I've added a new show to the lineup. I was so impressed with all of the uh, demos yesterday here in, in Chattanooga that I'm going to do a special 90-minute show tomorrow just to look at some of the innovative applications. Some will touch on. Uh, machine to machine, like we've talked about today, but just all you know, a number of areas of broadband were were touched on with the various applications that we saw yesterday. It's going to be a great show, so you definitely want to check in for that. 
Again, thank you very much, uh, folks, for listening in, and we'll talk again soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.